Support for the Warm Regards podcast and the following message come from Wonder Capital, allowing individuals to invest in solar projects. Earn up to 7.5% annually while diversifying your portfolio and combating global climate change. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash warm. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism. Welcome to Warm Regards, an ongoing conversation with scientists, journalists, newsmakers, and citizens on the front lines of climate change. I'm Jacqueline Gill, a paleoecologist at the University of Maine. As 2017 draws to a close, it's a good opportunity to take a breath, look back, and see where we've come. One of the things that has struck me is how much our media landscape has changed since the last election. We started the year concerned about fake news, and then we watched as the term itself lost all meaning. It just started getting thrown at any story that someone didn't like. We hear a lot about how divided our country has become, and sometimes it feels like we're living in different realities than our neighbors or even our family members. Take my dad, for example. I love that man more than words can express, and I know that he would do anything for me, but I can't follow him on Facebook. A huge proportion of what he posts is verifiably false, according to independent fact-checking organizations like PolitiFact or Snopes. He and I are polar opposites when it comes to more than 80% of our politics. I have read dozens of think pieces about how we have to get out of our bubbles, reach out to people who disagree with us, and do the hard work of building bridges over chasms that feel like they're getting wider by the day. But how do you do that when opinions are treated like facts and we trust pundits more than investigative journalists? After years of trying, there are just things that I won't talk to my dad about. So the challenges of communication are very deeply personal to me, but they're also a professional challenge because I'm someone who talks about climate change as part of my job. So those of us who have worked on controversial or highly polarizing topics like climate change, evolution, vaccines, or GMOs have been struggling for decades with a central challenge. How do you effectively communicate with people who might disagree with you? And what if you want to do more than just talk? What if you're trying to actually get them to change their behavior? If this is your challenge too, then you are not alone. There's an entire field of communication studies that addresses this very issue. There are people out there right now researching what works and what doesn't when it comes to changing hearts and minds, including when it comes to climate change. And I actually find that very, very, um, very satisfying. This research is tremendously valuable for people like me as we try to find a path forward through this mess of suspicion, tribalism, denialism, and disinformation. So I'm very excited about today's guest because she is probably the best at doing this of anyone I've ever met. Dr. Catherine Hayhoe is a climate scientist and professor in the Department of Political Science and director of the Climate Science Center at Texas Tech University. She's also the founder and CEO of Atmos Research, which works with stakeholders directly to assess the impacts of climate change on their infrastructure and planning. Catherine, it's so great to have you back on the show. Oh, thank you for having me. So my first question, I'm just going to cut right to the chase. Have you always been good at this? No. When I first started talking about climate change to people other, you know, outside of the ivory tower, I sucked at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's very comforting. <laughs> Take hope. Yes. And so, so how, how did I improve? First of all, I had the desire to improve. I mm. really wanted to be as effective as I could because when we go and talk to people, that's not part of our research. Typically, that's not part of our papers or our grants or even our teaching or our scholarship. It's part of our outreach. And we have limited time to do that outreach. 
And so we want to make every minute count. So when I go and I talk to people, I want that to be the most effective uh, communication that I could possibly have done. So I started with that desire. I ruthlessly analyze every single presentation, every single essay I write, even to today. As soon as I'm done and I've talked to people and kind of got a sense of how people responded, I ask myself after every single time, what could I have done differently to get the message across more effectively? And I also follow the social science literature very carefully to see all of the latest information people have on messaging and communication strategies. But the bottom line is practice makes perfect. You know, there's that book about how, you know, if you spend 10,000 hours doing it or 30,000 hours doing something, then you're an expert. I've, I've put in the time and the time really does make a difference. That's really good to hear because it means that you don't necessarily have to be born a genius at communication or, you know, the have, have some sort of internal ability to sort of em- empathize with people regardless of where they're at and, and sort of make magical connections, right? That is something that you can actually, it's a learned skill, right? We can, there's hope for some of us. Yes, yes. There's, there's a, yeah. It's a learned skill, but you have to have the desire to learn. That's a good point. Yeah. And it's, so starting off, I felt I felt I, like I had the desire to learn. I felt the calling to communicate to other people and to take on that work. But as a as an early career scientist, as a graduate student, even into the first few years of my faculty position, I have felt just overwhelmed by how big the audience is, right? Many of us feel like we have to reach everyone. But one of the very first things that I learned from you about science communication is not just to know your audience, but also to be strategic about it. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that? Yes. So the most effective basis for communication is identifying shared values. And by shared values, I don't mean you figure out what makes somebody else tick and then you sort of pretend that you agree with it, but you don't really. I mean, you actually have to identify something that you genuinely share with the people or the person that you're talking with. And it's really interesting because I just got a comment on Facebook literally last night. And this man said on my Facebook page, he said, I don't think the shared values argument works. People, right-wingers mostly, don't think an unregulated industry will hurt the environment. They believe what politicians tell them. Here's the thing. From what he wrote, it didn't sound like he had any shared values of people he was talking to. Right, right. Yeah. And, and so that's where being strategic comes in because I don't hunt and I don't fish. So I am not really the best person to be talking to the the hook and bullet crowd, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, also, uh, if I'm given a, ch- a choice between writing versus talking, I would rather talk. So I'm not hmm. a great person to run a blog because like writing a blog would be like pulling teeth for me, whereas I could just go talk to somebody at the drop of a hat. So being very strategic, first of all, in who we choose to engage with, a unique group of people that I genuinely feel part of, that I have something in common with, first. And then second of all, being strategic in the way I engage, it's a way that I feel comfortable engaging and that I feel effective engaging. That is so good to hear because I've done a lot of um, social media trainings or I talk to people about social media and often what I hear from people is just this sense of obligation, like I have to start a blog or I I have to get involved on Twitter and I just don't want to. And I, and I tell those people don't, you know, (laughs) if that's how, if you're approaching this as, as though it's, it's, I mean, it's, it's work, but if you're approaching it like it's a burden, then that's, you're, you're coming at it from the wrong place. You just have to find the thing that, that works for you. And I think um, a lot of folks who, have, who know of you and know of your efforts often think of your role as a member of the evangelical community, which I think for a lot of folks 
that at least in the, in the, in my bubbles, that always comes as a surprise to people because we have our own stereotypes and our own biases that we bring in terms of who we think scientists are and what their values are. And so I love your story about, you know, even, even your own personal story about your husband. And I was wondering if you would be willing to share that with us. Sure. So I love the work of sociologists because they're the ones who, who study us, study us as humans. <laughs> and one of my favorite sociologists is Elaine Eklund, who works at Rice University on the other side of Texas from me. She studies scientists and spirituality. So through her groundbreaking work, she has showed that about 75% of scientists at top research universities um, view themselves as as uh, more than just the physical. In other words, there's a spiritual component to their lives and to their beliefs. 75%. That's pretty yeah. high. It's really high. Yes. And then I think, I can't remember the exact number, but I think somewhere around 25 to 30%, somewhere around there, would actually call themselves specifically Christians. Uh, so it, it isn't, the stereotypes that we have are not necessarily true. And mm-hmm. when you go and you talk to people in, in churches or faith groups, I have to say, one of the things that surprised me the most is I've gotten so many invitations and I've had so many great visits to uh, Christian colleges, private Christian colleges. And being a public school person myself, I went into the first couple of those visits with an absolute prejudice. I went in there thinking, oh, well, they probably teach, you know, this and that and all the stereotypes we have, you know, about Christian colleges. They probably teach all these backwards things. They probably even hardly have a science program, what you call science. And I have been absolutely uniformly taken aback by the incredible scientific scholarship and integrity that takes place at Christian colleges from Wheaton to Pepperdine um, to Abilene Christian University and everything in between. So I I myself have learned that my own stereotypes weren't actually necessarily correct. And but that that fascinating discovery has been possible by the fact that I was willing to take that chance that I wasn't going to prejudge people, but I was willing to let them speak for themselves to show me who they were. And I have been incredibly pleasantly surprised, I have to say. Yeah, it's it's interesting, too, because I think it really shows that you are, we're all approaching our work, whether it's as climate scientists or advocates or just people who, who care about the planet, we're all approaching this great project from wherever we are, right? Whether, you know, you're a stay at home mom or you're a retired person, you know, making birdhouses and you're in your garage, (laughs) right? Like we, (laughs) we all have, yeah, we're, and and I think it's, it's nice to just have permission to, to engage in this project from where we're at and to, to start with, with the things that we're passionate about and, and to reach people, you know, by connecting with them around our, our shared interests and shared passions. And I really like that just to even some people are so afraid to even start this work because they think they're going to have to get so far outside of their comfort zone. They think they're going to have to fight, right? That they're, when I talk to people about engaging about climate change with say their neighbors or, or other parents at the bus stop or something, they kind of approach those conversations with their fists up. Like they're going to have to, uh, to, to win and, and, and have all of the, the perfect facts at hand. But it, it sounds like from what you're saying that none of that is, is necessary that ha- you don't have to have your sort of list of scientific references and your charts and graphs. Um, and you don't have to approach this as though it's a, a battle. Not only that, but that type of approach is counterproductive. It will end up with a deeper trench between you nine times out of 10 mm-hmm. than when you began. If you're going in with the perspective of you're wrong, I'm right. And I'm going to prove that to you. Yeah. I think that identifying those common values is really important. And let's be honest, it is harder to do 
the more intimately we know a person. I would agree. <laughs> so yes, if, if it's just random person that we have a conversation with and we're willing to listen to them, get to know them, figure out what makes them tick, then connect the dots. That is so much easier than our uncle, our cousin, our father, um, mm-hmm. who's known us all our lives. And he was just absolutely convinced that they know better than we do, especially if they're older than us. So, so don't, don't feel discouraged if, you feel like you're not making any headway with your own family because your own family is the hardest to make headway with. Um, John Cook, I love this story. And and John Cook, uh, who started Skeptical Science, well, the reason why he started Skeptical Science, which is the premier website that debunks all the sciencey sounding objections when it comes to climate change, he started Skeptical Science because of his own father, no way. Yes. I, had no, I did not know that. I didn't know that. Yes, his dad. And so, you know, he'd be home for dinner and his dad would be like, well, John, I hear there's more <laughs> polar bears now than there was 30 years ago. What do you say to that? Wow. <laughs> of course, an Australian accent, but I can't do an accent. So. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so John creates the premier website in the entire world. John goes on to become a world-renowned scholar in debunking and in science communication and messaging. Do you think that convinces his dad? No, 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 no. (laughs) But John just shared with me recently that um, uh, not that long ago, his dad, um, where he lives, they offered a special rebate on solar panels. And so his dad, (laughs) whose identity is that of a fiscal conservative, did the math and figured out that he could save a ton of money by taking advantage of this rebate. So he did. He got solar panels. He saved all this money. He went around telling everybody how much money he saved because it reinforced his, his identity as you know, a smart, shrewd person. Yep. Yep. And then about a year or two later, he came to John. He's like, you know, John, you might be right about this whole climate change thing, but I'm doing my part. Huh. That's what changed That's his mind. Well, it's, and it's interesting because he, I think when I, when I talk to people about about climate change who, who are coming at it from a very different political place than I am. And I'm, you know, for full disclosure, I'm, I'm very politically liberal. Um, I, I often find that we're not actually talking about climate change. Yeah. We're talking, we're not talking about whether the planet is warming and we're not talking about whether people are contributing to that warming. We're talking about what the government's role is in determining how we should respond, whether that's, should we re- reduce our emissions? Should we, um, you know, what are, you know, what are the, what are the laws or, or policies that should go into place? And for a lot of people that, that gets translated directly into what do I need to do differently or what part of myself do I have to let go of um, in order, if I, if I accept that climate change is real. And it's funny because eventually if you sort of push with people, it, it comes down to, well, I don't want my taxes to go up or I still want to be able to drive my SUV or something. And so it's interesting that this guy had this change of position once he realized he was doing something he was okay with that was also potentially having this, this collateral benefit. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And I love what you just said. What part of me do I have to let go of? That is how internalized this whole thing has become. It has actually become part of people's identity. And we have to recognize that for some people, now dismissives, according to the six Americas of global warming, dismissives are quite a small category, you know, about 10%, give or take. Mm-hmm. But um, they're very, very vocal, very convinced. And for somebody who is dismissive, you are actually asking them to do something as radical almost as like cutting off, you know, a body part, their arm or part of their brain. You're asking them to give up part of who they are to change their mind on, on this issue. And so that's why I very much view the communication I'm doing as not trying to change people's values. I have become increasingly convinced mm-hmm. that... of the people in the world have the values they need already to care about a changing climate. It's a matter of 
holding up a mirror and reminding people of who they already are, and then connecting those values that they already have to a changing climate so that caring about a changing climate is a more complete and genuine expression of who they already are, rather than requiring them to actually change who they are or lose a piece of themselves. Yeah, it's interesting because my my own dad, um, the, some of his movement on climate change, I think, has come around his recognition that my nephew or his grandson has really bad asthma, right? Mm-hmm. And that a lot of the things that will have a positive, a lot of the, the decisions that we could make as a country that would have a positive impact on climate change also influence air quality. And so it's, it, he, he's almost kind of come around to it as well. Well, maybe, maybe it doesn't actually matter. Maybe the world's not really warming, but we should do these things anyway, because they, they help out with, with the air. And, and I have to be okay with that because that right. might be the best I ever get, in which case the, the outcome is the same in the end, right? I don't really care necessarily what motivates him. Uh, as long as it doesn't hurt anybody. No, I, and I don't think you should care because what matters is what we do, not why we do it. If mm. if you look at the Six Americas, or sorry, if you look at the Yale Climate Opinion Maps, who are put out by the same people who do the Six Americas, the Yale Climate Opinion Maps, you compare how many people think that climate is changing due to human activities across the whole country with how many people think we should be re- investing in renewable energy, that we should even be limiting carbon dioxide emissions uh, from from power plants, it turns out the vast majority of the country says yes to solutions, even though they might not say yes to the actual science. And why are they saying yes to limiting CO2? I don't care, as as long as we can agree that that's what we want to do. Um, I had a really interesting experience. So a lot of people think that I spend most of my time talking to faith-based audiences, but actually that's probably only about I don't know, 20 to 30% of what I do. A lot of what I do is talking to audiences who aren't necessarily very open, but they're not necessarily faith-based. So I would say some of the toughest gigs I've had are talking to the leadership team of an oil and gas company. I mean, that, that was wow. tougher than a, than a Baptist college. Wow. Or talking to water managers in the state of Texas. That is one of the toughest groups. And so last year, I was invited to speak at the, to the annual meeting of all the water managers across the state. And, you know, the state senator who spoke before me says that climate isn't changing. And then the head of the big state agency who spoke before me doesn't account for climate change in their future planning. And then I was up. Wow. Wow. So I can't exactly hide the fact that I'm a climate scientist. That is what I am. But I talked about water because that's what we have in common. I talked about drought and flood. I talked about natural variability and El Nino. I talked about historical records that we've seen broken and what's been happening recently And then when everybody was nodding along with me, because I'd said all the stuff that they already knew, but just to show, hey, we're on the same page here, then I started to talk about the trends, how it's changing in the past and how it could continue to change in the future and even show climate projections, talking about how our our water resources would be affected on a warmer planet and then talked about adaptation. And at the end, um, people applauded, nobody threw any tomatoes, but the funniest thing happened. This woman came running up to me and grabbed my hand and shook it enthusiastically and she said, I absolutely love what you have to say. I completely agree with you. This just makes sense. And we all need to be preparing for this curve in the road that we're on. Mm-hmm. You know, those people who go around talking about global warming, I don't agree with them at all. But this <laughs> makes sense. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is, again, goes to show like this, just how deep that tribalism runs, that there are these cues, right? That you're, if, you're, if you hear the buzzword or whatever, then you know, okay, it's, it's like the, the signpost that says like danger, you know, something I don't want to hear is coming. And, and people just sort of shut down. And 
which makes me wonder too, like there was this recent study that showed that there's a decline in the usage of the term climate change in the public abstracts of a lot of NSF proposals. And a lot of people have different ideas about why that might be, whether that's trying to protect funding, et cetera, uh, or, or if it's just reflecting that the science is becoming more sophisticated. So we're talking about things like extreme drought rather than climate change as an umbrella term. But I, it, I do kind of wonder how if if we continue down the path of avoiding terms like global warming or climate change and and keep talking about things like um, you know extreme events or drought or sea level rise because they're more I guess neutral terms are we if if we're doing that as a strategy are we losing something somehow in 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 terms of our control over the discussion or is that is that kind of a good thing even even if we're kind of not really having the the full conversation. I mean, I, I'm not, I, I know it's not. Yes. I know. You know what I'm trying to say. Yes, I do. So, yeah. so I'm, I'm one of the um, lead investigators in the South Central Climate Science Center, which is one of eight DOI funded climate science centers around the country. And we cover Oklahoma, Louisiana, and Texas. Wow. And so we have to work with state um, uh, agencies and federal agencies and private landowners and farmers and producers and ranchers the vast majority of whom don't think that there's any such thing as climate science. So we actually joke to each other about how we never use the words climate and change sequentially. We, we say climate variability and long-term trends or something mm-hmm. like that. What, what is the goal? Um, that, that I, I do think it is acceptable not to use incorrect language, but to use alternate words to express the same concepts if we are talking to a person or to people who we know will immediately shut their ears if we say climate change or global warming in the first sentence. Mm-hmm. I, I think that that's actually good communication practice. Now, I'm not advocating, you know, gl- glossing over the truth. I'm not advocating using false information or false characterizations at all. But I am advocating not being, you know, in the same way when we talk to the general public, um, I had someone say to me recently, you know, you really shouldn't say that volcanoes produce um, dust and soot because it's really, you know, sulfuric acid that turns into aerosols. And I'm like, aerosols? You can't say aerosols when you're talking to the average person because they think you're talking either about a type of shoe or about spray cans. So we had an interesting discussion how even accurate scientific language when there's no political loading to it is not necessarily the best way to communicate with the public. You ha- we have to think of different ways to say it. And I love that discussion because we settled on tiny atmospheric particles from volcanoes. And <laughs> I think that's okay. Um, so often we're in science, we do have to use the most precise and accurate wording because we're always counting the word length in our journal articles. And we want to make sure that we communicate exactly what we're doing with no possibility of misunderstanding. But when we're talking to the public, our goal is different. We want them to actually understand what we're talking about and not just understand, but listen. And so if there are things that I can, can if there are minds in the minefield that I can walk around those minds in order to get people listening to me longer and longer and longer, I will do that if it's important enough for them to actually understand what I have to say. Yeah, I really, I really like that because it also, I think, speaks to this issue we face as, as science communicators, where often as scientists, as you said, we're trained to use a super precise language, but we know because of the science of science communication that narratives and storytelling are often much more effective uh, than, you know, just throwing facts at people, sort of lobbying, lobbying them with, um, with statistics or information, having something like an analogy or, or some kind of a, a narrative works much better. Mm-hmm. And for me, I've kind of let go of this need 
to to have people remember exactly how many degrees of warming is happening or how many you know local meters of, of sea level rise we'll face. But if they just have a general sense of these problems, then I'm I'm happy with that at the end of the day. Um, the details kind of can kind of come out in the wash, I guess. Well, or we can just Google them. I mean, nobody yeah, remembers right, exactly. Them. We just Google them, right? Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Yeah, and, and I even do that right in my own life. Yes, um, I do too. Yeah. So we have. Um, I was an author on the federal government's big climate science report that just came out a few weeks ago. The climate right. science report and. Um, everybody can access it online. It's there at science2017.globalchange.gov. And if I want an exact statistic on how much is the range of sea level for this date, I don't keep that in my head. I just go to the report and look it up. Yep, exactly. I mean, we do that, right? So why, why are we expecting the public to, to be any different? Um, so when I talked about how you you were going to be back on the show uh, on Twitter, I had so many people asking you know, about specific conversations that are coming up with the holiday season that they're dreading, right? Like I have to go home, it's Christmas time, or I'm going home for winter break, and I have to talk to a family member that disagrees with me. And so it sounds like from what you were saying, the engaging with our family or the people who are closest to us is often the hardest. So but sometimes we still feel like we might have to. And so what, what advice do you have for, for people who are maybe going home and they're either talking to their, you know, crotchety uncle Bob or their, their parents or, or someone who is close to them, but maybe, uh, is, is they're, they're kind of gearing up for a fight or there's just not a lot of common ground. Oh yes. Yes. We all have relatives like that, I think. So, so my advice is, and this is advice that has been tried and tested many times, Get yourself some really cool, fun talking points on solutions. Mm. And we talk about a lot of these solutions in our global warming videos. In fact, one of my favorite, or sorry, global weirding videos, one of my favorite global weirding videos is the one we did about Texas, because there's these amazing talking points about what is happening in Texas that almost nobody knows about. Um, Like the fact that the biggest military base in the whole U.S., which is Fort Hood in Texas, went with wind and solar energy over natural gas because they could save taxpayers about $150 million by doing so. Wow. Who could argue with that? Exactly. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, so find yourself a couple of stories like that. The fact that China is investing $360 billion in clean energy and we're falling behind China. Do you want that? Seriously, right. Uncle Joe? Find yourself some of those and uh, bring those to the conversation. And I have even had, I mean, this is a very extreme example, but I've even had conversations as extreme as this. Um, and this is with somebody who is dismissive, so I'm not planning to change their mind about climate change because dismissive people, I think it would take an act of God literally to change their mind. So I don't yeah. deceive myself. I'm going to. I, I talk primarily to people who are doubtful or disengaged or even cautious, trying to move them up to, you know, to being concerned about this. But if you're talking to somebody who's hardcore dismissive, for example, I have had conversations like this. You know, we know it's just the sun. No, it isn't. But did you know that in Texas, we got 25% of our energy from wind the first quarter of this year? Wow. Small puzzled pause. Well, the EPA told me I couldn't burn wood in my wood-burning stove. Yeah. Well, did you know that Fort Hood went green and they're actually saving us $150 million? Do you have a problem with the military saving us $150? Well, no, I guess I don't have a problem. But, you know. Yep. So, so bring those talking points to the table. And, if, and finally, you know, they'll get to the point where they're like, well, why are you saying these things? And then I, I say, well, because these are the solutions. Do you have a problem with any of these solutions? And they'll have to say, well, no, actually, I don't. And I say, okay, we don't have to agree on the science. As long as we agree on the solutions, we're good. Oh, that is so hard to say. We don't have to agree on the science. Like, yeah. I think it's really hard for some of us to let go of because 
we also have our own identities that are being challenged, right? Like as a, as a scientist, like having to let go of my desire to have someone believe in, in reality, right? It's really hard. (laughs) Oh, you are so right. And so if, if we're going to um, engage in these discussions outside the ivory tower at all, the hardest lesson for me to learn was exactly the one you just highlighted there. I have to be willing to give up my rights. I have to be willing to give up my right to be correctly perceived, correctly represented, and most of all, respected. I am disrespected every single day by someone who, I'm sorry to say, 99.9% of the time is male. Um, Oh, yeah. That's my, that reflects my experience too. Kind of standard, yes. But I'm disrespected every single day by somebody who has no education and no background in my field, but is absolutely convinced they know more than I do about this. And if I took that personally, if I took that as a reflection, and I'm not saying that I like it, I do not like it at all. But if I took that as a personal reflection of my identity and I let myself react to that emotionally and let it actually affect me and hurt me, then I can't even do my own job properly, let alone engage with people effectively. And so if we can't do that, that's okay. It's not easy. And in, if that's the case, then, you know, face-to-face, um, person-to-person, mano-a-mano engagement is maybe not our, our forte, not our expertise. But if we are, mm-hmm. if we are able to say to ourselves, I'm just going to give it up. I'm going to, you know, they, I'm willing, and I, I really am, and I even say this to people, I'm willing for you to go away and say, she is a complete idiot. She doesn't mm-hmm. know anything she's talking about. You are entitled to your opinion, and if you want to say that, you absolutely can but you also have to consider that maybe I might be right. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's so hard because, you know, even, even just as someone with a, with a much smaller platform than people like, you know, you or Michael Mann or some of these other climate scientists who get a lot of heat, you know, I've received my share of Mm -hmm. of online abuse, especially online. Um, And it's, you know, when I first started off as a grad student on Twitter, I felt an obligation to like save every person I, that I interacted with. Right. Like, or if nothing else, like I would engage with them, even if I knew I couldn't change their mind, I felt like I had to correct their misinformation for the sake of people sort of lurking in the wings, just watching the, the exchange happen. And then at a certain point you realize that either, either, either their tactics changed or I got more sophisticated in my ability to read what was going on. But I realized that a lot of people are engaging, not not in good faith in that they're not trying to get you to change your mind. They're just trying to get you to go away. And by the asking, sort of asking these questions that are not genuine questions they're sort of not engaging in good faith. And I realize that the, they're, they're really just trying to wear you down so that you, that you just stop talking. And when I real when I realized that it became a lot easier for me to, to just, um, block people and move on <laughs> because uh, you know you're right it's like the 10% the dismissives or even the smaller percentage of people who are you know actively harassing people on the internet they're not they're you're not going to ever engage with them because they it's a game and the the only way they win is if you stop talking you are totally right. We, when we first start engaging, we feel like we can convince anyone because we have all the facts. And what we have to recognize mm-hmm. is, and this is actually our most cited Global Wording episode, if we just tell people the facts, will it change their minds? No, it won't. And for people who are dismissive, who operate in very much their own bubble on Twitter, but only come out to attack others like you and I, for those people, their goal is never to be convinced. It is never to engage in a good faith dialogue or or, or conversation, their goal is to wear us out, to occupy our time so that we cannot use that time and that emotional energy to do something more effective. Right. So now, yeah, not only am I, if I, if I get worn down or, or stressed out by this sort of constant attack, not only do I just sort of lose my morale and, 
and wander off. Um, but I'm also just sort of wasting that I'm wasting energy on one individual that could be used on to, to sort of share my excitement and love of science and my care for the planet with, you know, the many other people that are following me who are doing that because they, that's what they're there. You know, that's what they're there for. They're there to engage in a, in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, Some, I, I found yeah. the same and I also found that it made me short with my family sometimes. Like I would go mm-hmm. home in a bad mood. I would just feel cranky. I would have this argument yeah. going in the back of my brain. I'd be like, Ooh, I'm going to check to see what they said next. And yeah. I just thought, you know, that's not how I want to live my life. I don't want them to have that type of control over my emotions it is yeah. not worth it. The facts are all out there. I, I, I do have a policy where I give people the facts once and I point them to the resources they need once. And mm-hmm. then I feel like they have to have the responsibility. In fact, on our Facebook page, we even have a standard reply where we say, please have the courtesy to take advantage of these resources. Here's the list of resources that answer your questions. We, we will see you back after you have had a chance to update your understanding. And yeah. if people cannot take responsibility for their own learning as an adult, then why should we? Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I mean, I have, I have very similar experiences where, you know, just the, after this recent episode on the show where we had Sarah Myrie on, we talked, the whole episode was about sexual harassment. And then of course, like she was, she mostly her, but in, I, I was also targeted by a lot of people in the climate you know, denial category who are very vocal on Twitter. And there was some terribly unprofessional and awful behavior. And I, you know, even though I had already sort of felt like I had a good policy in place, like I let myself get bogged down with that. And I, I, I let myself, I made choices to engage or to, to be sort of, um, I I took the bait in some cases. And I just remember this conversation, like I went out with my husband for lunch, which we rarely ever get to do. Uh, we both had free time and we went and I'm sitting here on Twitter, you know, arguing with people. And my husband is sitting right there looking at me and he's like, is this the choice that you want to make right now? Like, this is why I hate it when you do this. He's like, I support you 100%, but, you know, these people are, are stealing from us. And, you, yes. you know, stealing. like you can't let, yeah. don't let them steal from us, you know? And and that just was like this very sort of up close and personal re, you know, realization that, you know, you can't reach everyone. You shouldn't be spending, you know, more more good energy after bad and, um and it's gotten me to think a lot more carefully about how to engage with people. Like my dad, yeah, he, you know, he's still worth that project, and it may take years and years, and we're, and, and the needle may move really slowly. But you know, for a handful of people on Twitter who spend a disproportionate of their time complaining about me and you and others, um, there's there's nothing to be gained from engaging with them. Mm-mm. No, I completely yeah. agree, and that's one of the the biggest lessons I think for us to learn is that the loudest voice is not the most effective voice to engage with. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I guess I, I, you, you do so many things that are just incredible projects. You were involved with Years of Living Dangerously. Um, you're part of the Citizens Climate Lobby. Um, you've got this, you're now in the this second season of this amazing PBS digital studio series called Global Weirding. I'm seriously send people links to the episodes all the time when they have questions. It's become such a great resource. Um, so what, what advice would you give to someone who's just starting out? You know, what, where, where is this work needed most right now? So my outreach evolved very organically and I would encourage others to follow, follow the same approach because then you know, you're actually doing what's needed. 
Um, mm. Seek out opportunities. Like you mentioned Climate Voices earlier. Climate Voices is a fantastic organization that offers us scientists a chance to put up our, our picture, our expertise, where we live and say, hey, if you want a local person to come talk to your group, I'm here. I would be happy to come mm. talk to your kid's school or your local Kiwanis club or Rotary club or senior citizens home. That's a great way to put yourself out there. Also, engaging in social media is another great way. Or often people say, I'd like to plug in a little bit further. How can I do that? And then I say, well, look for a group that is really focused on your interests. Are you passionate about butterflies? There's groups about butterflies and monarch butterflies and all types of butterflies all over. And maybe they want a science advisor. And that's what I do, for example, for Citizens Climate Lobby. I'm their science advisor. I'm also the science advisor for the Evangelical Environmental Network. But sometimes other groups say, well, you know, could you be my science advisor? I'm like, well, you know what? I don't really have that much in common with you, but let me give you a couple of other names because there's other people who would like to be your science advisor. Um, The the more of us they're engaged, the better. So there's a lot of different ways we can plug in, whether it's um, offering to, you know, give a talk or write write a blog piece or engage in social media or, you know, plug in at the kid's school, uh, there's so many things we can do. And so when I talk, when I say organically, I mean, you know, look for something that you enjoy doing, that you have a connection to, that you feel like you can really plug in and make a difference with. And then if you're successful, it will grow. If you're meeting a need, it will grow. If you feel mm-hmm. like you're pushing against a wall and you're doing your very best and you, you, you know, you've even asked other people and gotten suggestions and advice and you're just not getting through that wall, in that type of situation, I would suggest maybe you need to start looking elsewhere for a place mm-hmm. to spend your energies. So, and you don't have to be a scientist to do any of this, right? Oh, no. All you have to be is a human. Most of us are. That's good. That's help. That that helps. (laughs) Great. Well, thank you so much, Catherine. Um, Is there anything else that, I mean, I feel like we could have you on the show every week and and never run out of things to talk about, but is there anything else that you wanted to say that you didn't get a chance to in terms of people who are sort of facing down the holidays with dread about family engagements or people who might be feeling discouraged about moving the needle with the people in their community? Yeah, I would say don't let yourself get dragged into the whack-a-mole game. The whack-a-mole <laughs> game is, you know, as soon as you whack the it's not warming on the head, up pops the it's just a natural cycle. You whack that one on the head, up pops the no, it's solar, you know, solar flares. Don't let mm-hmm. yourself get dragged into the whack-a-mole game. Find a bunch of really cool talking points. And if you're looking for them, I have them on my Facebook page because I actually look for things like, you know, a negative emissions power plant in Iceland or, um, you know, the fact that driving an electric car will save you $770 across the entire United States on average in 50 major cities. Look for these talking points and go into the holidays armed with a couple of really cool talking points that you are sure whoever it is who is your bugbear or your nemesis would actually maybe agree with you on. And turn the conversation deliberately, you know, don't let them control the conversation. If they say it's just a natural cycle, you can say, well, it's not, but did you know, and literally in the same breath, but did you know, offer a really cool talking point? Hmm. And they'll be like, oh, I didn't know that. And you you might be surprised. You might have a very different conversation than you thought. And, and somebody might say, well, isn't that a bit disingenuous, you know, just taking the conversation and turning it 90 degrees? <laughs> no, it's not disingenuous. And here's why. Because, and I'm sure your experience has shown this too, Jacqueline, when we, when we really get down to it, 99% of the time or more, the real objections people have aren't to the science. 
The mm-hmm. real objections they have are to what they perceive to be the solutions, which consist of destroying the economy, complete government totalitarian control, um, you know, co- socialism, <laughs> communism, socialism, and the Antichrist, yeah. all in one yeah. package. Yeah. Um, so, so if that really is their real objection, which it almost always is, then by directly addressing that, by talking about positive solutions, we are actually having a real conversation about the real issues, whereas engaging with the whack-a-mole game on the science, we're not actually talking about the real problem. We're just talking about the surface, what I think of as a smokescreen. It is a deliberate smokescreen to say, well, I can't agree with the solutions because it's not a real issue. It's a lot easier to say it isn't real than to say it is real and I don't want to fix it. But if I do want to fix it, if it turns out, wow, this is super cool, I don't mind doing this, I would support that, then all of a sudden, our perspective on the reality of the issue changes. Yeah. Oh, that's so good to hear. And it sounds like there's a lot of entryways for people to to just start small. And I, I think, you know, we have to fight this 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 idea of climate silence, right? That people are so afraid to have these conversations that they're not having them at all. And that knowing that there are many pathways and that you can reach people from where you are to where they are, I think is really empowering. Mm -hmm. If if I could recommend one thing for every person to do, uh, it would be to talk about this issue, to have a conversation. Because when they've done surveys looking at how many people actually hear anybody else talking about climate change more than once or twice a year, 75% of people in the whole United States don't. Wow. So the number one thing we can do is talk about it because why would we care about this issue if nobody ever talks about it? And why would we think we can fix this issue if nobody ever talks about the solutions? Exactly. And it just sort of normalizes it as something that's a problem that we're all dealing with together. You know, this one thing we often say on the show is we're all in this together, right? And and by by talking about it, you know, at, at the bus stop with your fellow parents or in the checkout line or wherever you are over dinner, I think it, it helps to normalize this as a, as a common issue. And my only caveat would be nobody is allowed to joke about the cold weather and say so much for that global warming, ha ha ha, yeah. because I'm looking outside at like trees covered in ice and snow right now. And if anyone says that, um, um, then my, I might have to push them down a slippery sidewalk, but um, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> into a, into a gentle ice crusted snowbank. Yes, but of um, yeah, so thank you so much, Catherine. It was it was so good to talk to you. It's I always feel very jazzed up by our conversations, and I know that people listening to the podcast are also going to walk away from this with a whole list of ideas that for things that they can do in their own lives. And that's for me, getting past diagnosing problems and into solutions is so important. And that's one of the reasons that I really love talking to you. Well, likewise, this has been a great conversation. Let's do it again sometime. Absolutely. And for all of you folks listening at home, I hope you're having a wonderful holiday season. You're not overdosing on too much holiday music too soon. Um, And I hope that you do commit yourself to before the end of the year, we don't have much time left, having a a climate conversation in your home or your workplace or around your friends, because those kinds of conversations are so important. And hopefully with this episode, you've learned a little bit more about how to do that in an effective way. And and still retain your your sanity and your sense of self. And so uh, for our producers uh, here at Warm Regards, um, 
uh, Jesse Ann Baines and Eric Mack. And for my my co-hosts who are off doing important journalistic things, Eric Holthouse and Andy Revkin, uh, I'm Jacqueline Gill with Warm Regards. We would love to hear from you anytime. You can email us at ourwarmregards at gmail.com. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at Our Warm Regards. And you can also uh, harass us on Facebook or tell us nice things as, as you desire. And we hope to hear from you soon. Thank you and be well. Support for the Warm Regards podcast and the following message comes from Wonder Capital, the leading solar investment platform. With Wonder, individual investors like you can now invest in large-scale solar energy projects across the U.S., earning up to 7.5% annually and helping to fight global climate change. Wonder's newest fund, Wonder Capital 5, has raised more than $3 million from investors in its first 30 days. Create an account for free at wondercapital.com slash warm and commit your investment before January 1st to take advantage of Wonder's holiday special, Zero Investor Fees. Act now because starting in 2018, new investments will be subject to fees. Wonder Capital, where impact investing meets capitalism.